Hey, one more thing before you go. What's it like growing up in a blended religious family? How do you rationalize your own father's suicide? How do you escape the reality of struggling with identity, secrets, family infighting, and more? Stay tuned. In this episode, we share the journey of a woman who did exactly that. She grew up in that environment, which created a unique opportunity for a better understanding of life. It led her to heal, and that journey may inspire you to heal as well. Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is The Thing About the Rope of Life. My guest in this episode is Marinda Kosoff. She's been anywhere from a hospital social worker, an assistant manager, and an editor of a large newspaper, a communications director for an academia and nonprofit organizations, a jewelry designer, and a member artist in Chapel Hill's Frank Gallery. She wrote a weekly column for a newspaper and taught essay writing at Duke University in a continuing education program. But she was missing something. She needed to heal from the trauma of her father's self-destruction, growing up divided amongst the cultured Jewish side of her family and the fundamentalist Southern Baptist side. Her small town, Southern values were torn between hiding both town values, town secrets, and family secrets, and not belonging. So, what was born was a unique memoir that helped her heal, and she hopes that it will help you too. Welcome to the show, Marinda. Thank you. So pleased to be talking with you today. You know, it, it, you have an amazing journey getting to where you've gotten to, and a lot of us, I know that I, I myself can empathize with you and understand exactly where you came and trying to find your identity and find out more about you and your identity and your family. Um, you know, you had some incidences that took place in your life that kind of launched you into that career, but let's start at the beginning. So where'd you grow up? I grew up in Danville, Virginia during the Jim Crow South. And at the time, Danville was a textile and tobacco town. And in the summer, you could hear, not hear, but smell tobacco in the air throughout the town. It was just this uh, kind of Swedish, not Swedish, but sweet-ish. Sweet-ish. Odor that permeated the town, uh, especially during tobacco market. It was also called the last capital of the Confederacy because historically it was, and Danville was quite quite proud of that fact at the time. So I, I know there's some factors, and we'll talk about that here in a few minutes, in regard to your your uh, blended religious family, and I think they played a part in, in how you grew up and so forth. Um, do you have any brothers or sisters? I do. I'm the eldest of four, two sisters and one brother. Speaking about growing up in the in like in the in the mixed religion, help us understand that because you had some a Jewish background as well as a Southern Baptist background. Yes, I'm uh, genetically I'm fifty percent Ashkenazi Jew and fifty percent English Irish heritage on my mother's side. My father was um, a Jew who grew up in New York, and my mother was a 
fundamentalist Southern Baptist who grew up on a farm in North Carolina. Interesting, interesting combination, actually. The, the Southern yeah. Baptist, I mean, two extremes almost between Southern Indeed, Baptist they were. and the- yeah. Yes, and, and a lot of my Jewish friends have said, that's just never done. That a Jew, my father converted, I must say that right up front. Um, and my, my Jewish friends have said that that's never done for a Jew to convert to Christianity. They'd never heard it before. Yeah, I have Jewish friends, um, and, and uh, it's completely different. Although one of them, he's unfortunately was lost in a violent accident. Um, he, Richie, mm-hmm. was fantastic. He was a police officer that worked under me and had been a police officer in New York for years. Um, but he was Jewish, and uh, even though he was Jewish, though he embraced the uh, the the magic of Christmas. So in Christmas, he would wear a Santa's cap while he was patrolling <laughs> and as he drove around and see any kids he'd get out and hand him candy with a Santa's hat on and he was Jewish so I always thought that was uh, kind of unique kind of unique yeah. unique do you think anti-semitism played a part in either him converting and or what was the reason for him converting did he, he meet your mother well I think my mother had a big impact on him um, he he enlisted at 19 during World War II, was assigned to the Overseas Replacement Depot in Greensboro, North Carolina, where my mother was living, and she was volunteering at the USO. A friend introduced them, and uh, he started visiting her family and uh, having dinner with, my, with her mother, my grandmother, and being coddled and stuffed with all kinds of Southern food that he came to love. So he had and the church with her. So he was exposed to Christianity and Southern Baptist Christianity um, when he was dating my mother. And he wanted to marry her before he shipped out, but she said, no, I don't want to be a war widow. So uh, for two years while he was overseas, he never wrote her. Getting back to your original question, the conversion episode, as he told me, was when he was he was in the Army Air Corps. He was a top turret gunner and flight engineer, and they he and his crew flew twenty six um, bombing missions over Germany. Wow! And on one of those missions, they were in a dogfight with some Messerschmitts. And their plane, to be 17, was riddled with bullets. And my father said at the time, prayed to God to save him and bring him and his crew safely back to base. And if God saved him, he would become a Christian. So he made it back to base and he became a Christian, which was, uh, I'm sure, smoothed the way for him reconnecting with my mother when he got back. Yeah, that's an interesting story. I read the book, and your 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 book, The Rope of Life, takes us on a very unique journey, and um, it's it's written very well. Um, Thank I'm not, you. I'm not being biased because I have you on my show. Um, I'm, I grew up in a writing family. My father was a journalist. I grew up in a newsroom, actually. Um, so, yeah, it's a really good book. Uh, you, you present everything in such a way that you carry us forward um, with your journey, with that journey, with your fathers, your mothers, uh, you, your kid, you know, his kids, everything. 
you, you, it's done really well. It's done really, really well. So I know that within that book, there, there you had mentioned, and I think some of the correspondence I've gotten from you, that um, he also suffered some anti-Semitism. Was that during the war or prior to the war? I don't, he never talked much about his life prior to the war, but I know that he experienced it after coming back to the U.S., a war hero. He uh, went to UNC Chapel Hill, the uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, on the GI Bill, and then he went to the University of Maryland to get a, a DBS on the GI Bill. So he and my mother wanted to settle in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which would be near my mother's twin sister. So he took the North Carolina Dental Boards and flunked, and he had graduated 20th out of a class of 120 at dental school. So my mother, through some channels, um, she had worked for a doctor in Greensboro as, as a licensed practical nurse. And she went to him and some other people and asked them to find out why my dad plunked. And what he brought back to her was um, the actual quote that he heard, which was, we flunked him because we didn't want another Jew practicing in Winston-Salem. Wow. And my mother said that was the only time she ever saw my father cry. So we ended up in Danville because they were looking for a public health dentist. And my father took the Virginia Dental Boards and passed handily and um, practiced as a public health dentist for about a year before setting up his own practice. And, um, and then there were subtle things throughout his life. Um, and I experienced them too. But, you know, in the South, people are polite. Even their anti-Semitism is sugar-coated. I have relatives from the South, Mississippi area and Pacific and Alabama and um, the North Carolina or South, South Carolina. So, yes, I understand that. It, unfortunately, I understand that. Um, <clears throat> so he went to college. In, in, we can go more into about that. Did you go to university? I did. At the time, I, at my senior year in high school, my father and I had the talk about colleges. And I wanted to go out of state. I wanted to go to the Northeast. Um, my grandparents, his parents, lived in New York, upstate New York. And uh, he said, well, you can go to any college you want as long as it's in Virginia and state-supported. And at that time, UVA, University of Virginia, was not accepting women. So the only college that I thought was one I wanted to be associated with was William & Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. It's the second oldest college in the country, uh, second to Harvard. So I applied to William and Mary, and I didn't apply to any other colleges. So fortunately, I got in because had I not, it would have been a big problem. Yeah, especially if you just picked the one. Um, what did you study? I started out as an English major because I had been a voracious reader as a kid, and my two English teachers in high school were my heroes. They were husband and wife um, English teachers at my high school. But as I got into taking courses, and given the milieu at the time, it was amidst the protests against Vietnam, and I was very much against the Vietnam War. 
um, I switched to sociology as my major because it seemed more relevant for the times I was living in and my um, engagement in social protest. So did, what was your, when you graduated, did you have any aspirations? I know you became a writer. Um, did you have any aspirations for that? Or was there was a, there was a time in your life that you were kind of, as you put it, a chameleon um, of yes. different things. So when you graduated, uh, what, what was the next step? Well, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, you know, growing up, I was at one time a concert pianist. I was a ballerina, um, you know, a lot of, uh, professions that were not going to be in the cards for me, but I didn't have any real clear sense of what I wanted to be when I grew up. But I did know one thing, and that was put as much distance between me and Danville, Virginia as possible. So I vowed to take whatever job would get me overseas. So the American Red Cross was recruiting at William and Mary that spring and I interviewed with them and I was given a job. I was told you have to serve one year in the United States and then uh, you have to go anywhere in the world we send you except an active theater of war and you can decline that. So I spent a year at um, DeWitt Hospital at Fort Belvoir in Alexandria, Virginia, working with uh, returning Vietnam vets who were wounded in mind and body and had long uh, recuperations ahead of them. And then I was sent to Japan because they were very short staffed in the Far East. And the hospital field director for the Red Cross had left abruptly. And so when they called me, I said, my bags are packed. I'm ready to go. I, I would say I that's, a, that's a long distance from, that's really far away from Danville. <laughs> yeah, I achieved that goal for sure. Yeah, I was like, let's, let's pick that one way over there. <laughs> uh, that works. Uh, you also, uh, so how long did you spend in Japan? I was there for three months. Um, I was supposed to be there for two years. But I, at this time, I was 22 going on 23, and I was made head of hospital services for the Red Cross, which also meant I was on 24-hour call seven days a week, every other week. There was a base field director that I shared call with, and I had a group of volunteers I was responsible for, all the staff under me at the hospital, and social work with the patients. I was overwhelmed. I did not have the experience to deal with the situation I was in. I think I handled my responsibilities well, but the emotional and mental cost and the anxiety was huge. So I asked for someone to come and help me figure out how to do my job in a way that I could, could handle it. And they sent, um, a Ruth Buzzy-like character over. <laughs> she had everything but the hairnet. She had the, the big, clumpy black shoes with the stocky heels, and she was very businesslike. And basically, she just told me to buck up and read the Red Cross manual. So that was no help at all. And um, I, I just decided I have to leave if I want to 
retain my sanity because I loved, I loved Japan. I loved the week I was not on call. I would work my eight hours, but then in the evenings, weekends, I could travel, I could go into Tokyo. And that part was fabulous. But the week that I was on lockdown on the military base, and I was against the war, there was just so much cognitive dissonance um, that I just couldn't handle it. I hadn't thought about that beforehand in my eagerness to go abroad. So I left um, after three months. It's, um, that's kind of a, you kind of had PTSD. We, we, and, people, yeah, we didn't recognize fact, it as that back then. It was not recognized as that. But we right. nowadays can say, yeah, I think that's what that was. Because it, it's anything, post-traumatic stress, you know, traumatic stress is, is um, can be done in any environment that creates the amount of stress upon ourselves that is a negative mental or a physical adverse effect. That's very astute for you. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's yeah, you sort of a PTSD. Um, so when you left Japan, did you go to England at that time, or was that later? That was later. I went back home. Unfortunately, I had no place else to go. And, but I immediately got um, a job, a social work job in Richmond, Virginia, and I was there for six months. Um, Richmond was too old south for me. Um, growing up, I had identified a lot with my uh, New York relatives, my Jewish relatives, and um, and also knowing about civil rights and Dandel's terrible record on civil rights. Um, Richmond just seemed too much like a bigger Danville. So um, I visited my sister in Chapel Hill, where she was getting a master's degree. And they were advertising two openings for hospital social workers at uh, UNC Memorial Hospital. And I got one of those jobs. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm landing about an hour and a half from Danville. But, you know, it's a college town. It couldn't have been further from uh, the milieu I'd grown up in. There are people from all over the world. Um, highly educated people in the region, you know, both from Duke and North Carolina State. Um, and there are a lot of um, people from other countries here. You could walk in the store and hear Italian, French, um, uh, some Indian dialect being spoken and not think a thing about it because these were scholars who were coming in. So anyway, um, I liked Chapel Hill. And and so that that job was a good job. I learned a lot. I had a great supervisor who taught me a lot. When did you, um, when did you kind of become a writer? Cause I know that you, you've written for newspapers and some, uh, other articles or I think newspapers and stuff. When did you decide to, to kind of take that route? Well, it, it coincided with taking, switching careers completely. Um, I got, I burned out on medical social work. Um, seeing people die, having to um, hold the hands of a dying patient, uh, working with young people who are paralyzed, either paraplegics or quadriplegics. And it was so depressing. I could not leave it at the office. I brought it all home with me. So I switched careers and I 
got a terrific job at Duke University working for the vice president for community relations. And he and I together, I mean, it was his impetus in me implementing it, started a program for visiting journalists. Uh, it would be the idea was for the journalists to take a sabbatical, however long their publication would allow them to be away. For most of them, it was a month. But um, to allow them to study up on an area that they wanted more knowledge about, do their own research, anything that would would aid them in their reporting and their writing. So we had journalists from the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and uh, eventually we had journalists from Japan, Germany, and France. And I was their first point of contact. And they were fascinating. They were such well-read um knowledgeable people who like to talk about world events and what was going on. And, and they talked about journalism and the, the practice of journalism, the, um, the, the world of journalists and how, how you get a good story. And it intrigued me. And um, during that time, I started uh, um, doing a radio commentary for, public radio, the local branch of National Public Radio, because I'd heard a friend who was a poet uh, read some commentary on the radio, and I thought, well, I can do that. So I recorded uh, an essay I wrote, and it had to be fairly brief, and sent it in, and I was contacted um, by the producers, and they said, yes, we would love to have you do this. And then I sent in more commentary, and I just started writing regularly um, these short essays that I could present on the radio. And that led to writing a column for a um, regional weekly paper. And I could write it about anything I wanted. There weren't any constraints. And so sometimes I wrote about politics. Sometimes I wrote personal columns. But I had a nice following. I got fan letters and some angry letters, which were fine with me because I just told me people are reading me, reacting, taking it in and having strong feelings. So I felt that that was successful if somebody had a strong reaction one way or the other. So they were paying attention to you, what you were, they read it. So yes. if they read it one way or the other, it was nice whether they liked it or they didn't like it, they read it. Exactly. And at the time, um, the main editor of the Raleigh News Observer, which is the newspaper of record for the state, it's in the state capitol, was on our board of directors for, um, I began, I eventually was named director of the Center for Communications and Journalism at Duke. And he was on our board. And so he recruited me away to work at the News Observer. And I thought, well, I've and it was a big salary hike. I didn't take it for the money, but I thought, you know, this is a new experience. I'll actually get to work in a newsroom behind the scenes. And uh, my job was newsroom operations, making sure everything went smoothly. I had secretaries under my watch, and I started. Uh, 
in and O University, where I brought in experts to talk to uh, the reporters about statistics, how you write about statistics and uh, and be correct in the story, and, and about other issues that would help them in their reporting. And eventually I started writing. Whenever there was um, somebody was out sick, I wrote, uh, I would be a utility, what is it, a utility infielder. Um, and so I wrote op-eds. I wrote um, a couple of travel pieces. I wrote a couple of feature articles. And then I started submitting articles to other publications, including um, a couple of national magazines. And I would, would write a query letter. I learned how to do all of that. And they s- started publishing my work as well. So I kind of came in through the back door and worked my way up um, just by being, um, I wouldn't call myself pushy. I'm Southern, so I'm not pushy, but persistent. I'm uh, persistent. Yes, I'm persistent. You know, it, it's I, I like I told you earlier, I grew up in a newsroom. And um, so I have respect for anybody that has to go through that process or goes through that process because the passion for getting the word out and getting getting something written so that people can either take one side or the other um, is unique. And I think you carried that you carried that experience with you um, when you wrote this book. I think you carried it forward with you because you tell a story in a very nice. It's not an in-your-face type memoir. It's actually a, a very. Um, it you take us on a journey. That's the only way I can really express it. It's a nice journey through everything. So it, it's when you left college, did you have any idea that you were going to end up as a writer like that? No, not at all. I knew that I wrote good term papers and I always got A's on them. And I knew that I loved reading, but I never put the two together with the idea that I would, I could write a book. I just thought of writing a book as climbing Mount Everest. Like, who, who on earth can do that? Yeah. You know, sit with something for so long. And I just never thought that I would be capable of, uh, focusing for that long because I seem to have a short attention span with all my different jobs. Well, it's, it's, I think, you know, you've done a, you've had a very diverse life in the, in your background and everything. I really, I think, you know, I appreciate that. Um, let's talk about your father um, and, and how kind of, how he played an integral part in your life and where you're at now. So I know we talked a little bit about him being in a, the World War II bomber group uh, a little bit earlier. Uh, do you think that had, um, do you think he came back with any PTSD? Did that stick with him? I'm pretty sure it did. Um, he never spoke about his emotions. I think men of that era um, wouldn't know an emotion if it slapped them upside the head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I can yeah. tell you that instead of bedtime stories, when I reached a certain age, maybe six or seven, he told me war stories. And he talked yeah. a lot about the war and the, the times, the first time he, he killed a man, I mean, they dropped bombs, so they didn't see the right. death and destruction up close. But he was in a, they were in a fight with a messer, messer, They should have come up with a better name for that one really easy. I know, or, or a, a, a shortcut. Um, and he, the bad he guy. was, 
he was the top turret gunner and yeah, the bad guys. And he saw the pilot and he said he was blonde. I could see the blonde hair looking out from under his um, helmet or whatever the guy had on. And he said, I fired and it hit the rim below the front cockpit. And I raised my gun sights and I hit him. I saw the bullet hit him and I saw him slump over and I saw that plane go into a tailspin. And that story was so vivid and upsetting that I have to believe that in his psyche, that was, I mean, we're taught thou shalt not kill. And uh, the killing to him had been the more abstract concept as a bomber. But to know that you actually killed someone, even though it was a war, must have been hard for him. I'm sure it was. And do you think that, I mean, what kind of feelings do you think he had in regard to that because of his Jewish background and what they were fighting for? Well, that's the other thing I thought a lot about, um, that maybe he fled Judaism because he saw what had been done to his people in Nazi Germany, and that maybe it was an escape to Christianity. I mean, that's only one piece of it. I mean, my father was a Gordian knot of experiences and um, issues that he never brought to light. He wasn't in touch with his inner self, but that inner self must have been full of contradictions and um, agonies. Well, and, and like you said earlier, you know, uh, men of that era um, are taught specific ways. You don't do this. You don't cry. You, you know, buck up. You're a man. You know, do the right thing. And, but at the same time, you've also got all these things that that compound upon each other. Um, Jewish background, Jewish background in the South, the Jewish background. You're you're in a war that literally is trying to. Um, win over what they're doing to they're trying I mean genocide yes it, it, you know so your feelings have got to be conflicted in regard even in that alone it's got to be conflicted and unfortunately anti-semitism you know did exist here and does exist here still which is yes. again unfortunate is rising its ugly head all over again so you know um he was a troubled man up to a certain point because they weren't ta- learned. They weren't taught to talk about it, right. and, and I understand that. Cops, as a cop, you're you're told and you're taught you have to suppress and override. You have to suppress and override. When I was in the military, suppress and override. You can't feel that way. You can't cry. You can't be weak. You have to be strong. You know, you're, it's indoctrinated into you. When you go through boot camp and military, it's indoctrinated into you. You know, when you become a, the law enforcement officer, firefighter, same thing. EMTs, nurses, doctors, same thing. You know, you're taught that you have to suppress it and override it. You're not allowed to talk about it. You're not allowed to be human. So sometimes that catches up with us, I think. Yes. So you, it's a lot to ask. Let's talk about your flight. You took a, you took a flight with your father. In his Cessna. That's an interesting... Yeah. yeah. He renewed his pilot license. Uh, I guess he was around 50 years old. And uh, he had built his dream house 
on 126 acres in Pennsylvania County outside of Danville. And uh, he put in a landing strip behind the house and he had a hangar built and he bought the Cessna. Um, I think it was a single engine. I don't remember specifically, but uh, none of the female members of my family would ride with him. Uh, my brother had gone up with him and my brother-in-law. When when he came back from the war, did he make a habit of flying, or like leasing a plane, renting a plane? For a while, but once he got married, which was, you know, he was 21 when he married my mother, um, and she was 30. Um, he and, and I was born um, about three years later after they married. I don't think he had time for that. He was building a practice. He was trying to support me. And by the time he left dental school, he had three kids instead of one. Right. My brother and sister were born in Baltimore. That probably doesn't leave much time for flying. No, none at all. So it was, you know, after we were all out of the nest, well, except for my youngest sister. And, you know, he had done incredibly well making investments in property and also simple practice with driving. And uh, this was a luxury he afforded himself. And he wanted, I think he wanted to reclaim those halcyon days of being free, being young, flying, the camaraderie with his uh, crewmates. And at the same time, he was. Um, unraveling. Right. He had cerebral back pain, which is an occupational hazard for dentists to begin with. And then all these other psychological issues um, compounded it, I think. So um, the flight with him was scary because I could see he wasn't confident. I could see his white knuckles on the wheel. And then he tells me, as after we lift off, that he doesn't have a transponder on the plane, which means there's no guidance, that that he had to use landmarks by sight to get us to the lake he wanted to take me to where we had a cottage and then back to Danville. And I'm thinking, holy crap, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not good at that. He better be, he better be on top of this. And then at one point he says, oh, I've lost sight of 54. I'm thinking, Please, please let us have. He says, and then he said, I think I have enough fuel to get us back. And I'm thinking, Dad, you think? But I tried not to upset him because I thought, you know, be calm. Uh, make him feel you trust him because he needs that to get us back. Um, and he did, though not without a lot of heartburn on my part. And the landing, um, he, he circled twice before landing. And then it was like we were like a rubber ball bouncing down the runway. So when he came, when he rolled to a stop, I opened the door of the cockpit and just fell on the ground. I, was, I felt like the Pope. I wanted to kiss the ground that I was back on. <laughs> so I didn't go up with him again. But, you know, he he would fly to the Outer Banks for fishing weekends on his own. He had an old car he kept there. He just loved to fish, and so he flew a lot for practical purposes until he couldn't. Until, until he couldn't, yeah. So 
the last, when you went up with him, um, I think it was about uh, three years from that date uh, is when you found out that he had committed suicide. It was uh, five years. Five years. Yeah. yeah. Was the remaining years after that flight just rapidly went downhill, both physically and psychologically. Um, his personality changed. I had always known him growing up. I, I revered my father because he was so smart. He was so creative. Um, he, he could do anything, I thought. And I would ride his back when we were surfing the waves at the Outer Banks. And I just thought he was so strong, so handsome, so smart. There was just nobody like him. And then, of course, as I grew older and saw how controlling he was, my opinions started to change. But um, I had never seen the man that that I was seeing as he started to go, go downhill. And I I was living in England for um, a year of that time. And so I didn't get to see up close how, how badly, badly things, things were going. going. But when, when I, I came, came back, back and, and started visiting my parents again, I could see um, how he was just, just a, a fingernail of his former self. And all he talked, talked about was his pain. If I walked into, into the room, it was, was like, like um, triggering um, a recording that said the same thing. You know, my back hurts so much, I, I can't get out of bed today. I can't, I, even reaching for my water glass makes my back hurt. And that was all he talked about. He just focused on that external pain. And I think there was so much internal pain going on that he could not reveal or even allow himself to speculate on that combined to to make him look twice his age and thin and um, out of it in some ways. That's really unfortunate. Do you think that, do you think he had any type of Alzheimer's or dementia or something like that 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 was um, kind of pushing him in the unraveling portion of it, or was it mostly his pain? I I don't think it was dementia. He, I think he might have been bipolar. I have speculated about that because he was always on the go. He was just, the man never stopped. He was president of this, president of that. He ran for city council. He ran for county commissioner lost both races, blamed himself, thought he was a failure because he couldn't win an election. But the man was never stopped. I don't ever remember him sitting down, um, except maybe to watch a little TV at night. But my mother was always in her Barker lounger, you know, that was, <laughs> they were opposite that way. And my grandmother, his mother, had episodes of what I would call catatonic depression, where she couldn't even speak. She just went into this place where she was unreachable. And um, she had several shock therapy treatments over the course of her adult life. And I think my father inherited that tendency to depression. Um, uh, mental illness, I think, was a part of the family. And... Um, 
I don't, I, I don't think it was dementia. I think it was severe depression and part of what may have been um, bipolar. Yeah, that's interesting. Mental health, obviously things, this country does not really look at mental health in a very positive light. It It is, they don't take a proactive approach to it other than take the pill, take a pill, take a pill. Um, in people of, like of, of his era, um, you you don't admit to having depression. You know, my grandfather right. went through that. I know I know that my grandfather went through that. He uh, and my grandmother actually. You just you, that's not something you talk about. It's not something you release to anybody. You don't tell somebody you're depressed. Um, you're depressed. You're broken. And if you're broken, you have to admit it. And if you have to admit it, that makes you weak. I mean, it just goes right down yeah. the line, unfortunately. Yeah, it's just it's just not. It just it's just not. So, um, yeah, I, was he being taken care of before he committed suicide? How how did you find out about that? Well, he had been in a number of different hospitals and had always been discharged with not much follow up. They didn't know what to do with him. He was a difficult patient. He would prescribe his own medications until the uh, pharmacist got a clue and stopped filling them. Um, so the last hospital he was in was the University of Virginia Hospital in Charlottesville. And he was on the psychiatric ward. He was on 24, sui 24 hours suicide watch. So we thought... He's safe because he had threatened suicide at home um, and he had hunting rifles and things. And my mother got them out of the house um, so that he had no access to that. Um, but my father was a determined man and a resourceful man. And he managed to he managed to do it. How did that affect you? I was gutted, even though I wasn't completely, well, I was surprised that it could happen when he was supposed to be under 24-hour suicide watch. But I wasn't surprised that he killed himself because he talked about it, and I could see there was no light in his eyes. There was no ability to connect with me or anyone else in the family. Um, but I was still gutted because he had been a, a giant heroic figure in my early childhood. And we had our differences as I grew older. But uh, at that time, my sons were about 18 months old. And the thought that he would never take them fishing, they would never get to know him, um, just tore me in two. And I, we always held out the hope that, that one of us could save him. How? I don't know. But, you know, I kept trying. I was the one who got him into these different hospitals because I'd been a hospital social worker. And um, I was the one that wanted him to get um, psychological help, psychotherapy. Uh, I did talk to his psychiatrist at UVA after the suicide. And he told me that my father was the most difficult patient he'd ever had. He said he 
didn't come anywhere near getting close to the source of my father's despair. Um, so I don't know there was anything any of us could have done, but you always blame yourself. You always think, well, if there's one more thing I, I could, could have, have done. done. Um, and I walked out on him the last time I saw him. That's in the book. But um, he was trying to get me to get him back into the VA. And I just said, Dad, I got you into the VA, and you told me you hated it there. They weren't doing anything for you. I said, I can't do that, Dad. You're in the right place for right now. And I can't let you keep manipulating me this way. And I said, I love you. But I left the room. And um, my mother used that against me in later years. That's unfortunate, actually. Um, yeah. And, and a lot of people don't understand that sometimes, you know, you can you can intervene to the best of your ability. But when somebody puts something to mind in regard to that in specific, it's very difficult to stop them on that path or derail them off of their track, so to speak. Um, it's, so, it, you know, I, I, I know that you know this, but for our viewers out there and our listeners out there, the reality is, is that you can intervene, you can take opportunity, but, you know, if for some reason they don't follow when you intervene or they don't allow you to help them, you know, that it's obviously not your fault. It It is something that they they had an intention of and there would, would be most likely nothing that could literally stop them from doing it in that regard. Right. So... Did that motivate you to write your book, Rope of Life? It did. Uh, what happened was I wrote a bunch of essays uh, that were published in various publications about my father's World War II service, about my relationship with him, about his suicide. Um, and my mother died in 2000. And so that's when I started writing in earnest because I felt that she would be appalled by a book that talked about my father's suicide. Um, and I had an essay published in a book of essays. Uh, and my youngest sister found out about it. And um, there was a lot of blowback. Let's just put it that way from her. So I thought, well, if writing this book is going to upset her this much, then I'll back off. Fast forward 20 years. And I'm depressed myself. And I remember having this insistent interior voice saying, you've got to write, you've got to write, meaning this book. And I was at dinner with a dear friend and I was in tears. And I said, I feel like if I don't write this book, I'm going to die, which was hyperbole, of course. But, you know, kind of a psychological death. Um, and she said, write it. And at that point, I thought, you know, it's it's my memory, it's my experiences, it's my story. It's not the story of my siblings. And uh, I told them I, I'm going to write the book this time. And they said, well, do what you've got to do, but leave us out of it. And I, I said, well, I have to uh, let readers know that I have siblings. I mean, I'm not going to write, write you into scenes or say anything about what you said or did. But and I gave I gave them pseudonyms, but I said, you know, you, you, you kind of have to be there because you're my family. And so they 
said, okay, yeah, that pseudonym's fine. Um, but I don't think they realized, or I'm assuming they thought I would never finish the book. And publishing it was kind of a shock to them. So there has been that fallout. Well, and, and I think that, um, at least from my experience, both personally and professionally, I've found that families don't always see uh, on the same level. And everybody's experience with their family is different. And that doesn't, it's not making excuses for any of them. This is just my personal experience and my professional experience in regard to families not wanting to see the reality of certain situations or accept the reality of certain situations. So they create their own environment and, and they live in that arena. Yes. Which, you know, they, they make that, that kind of a choice. Was it difficult to research and uncover secrets that you never knew? Yeah. There were days when uh, writing the book affected my mood a lot. My husband would sometimes walk into my the room where I write, and he would see a look on my face, and he would say, what's, what's wrong? Are you writing about hard stuff again? And I said, yes. Um, but on the opposite side of the coin, it was also free to know the truth and to be able to put uh, reason behind choices that my father made and things that I saw but couldn't explain ways that he was behaving that I couldn't explain. And in, in learning these other things, these secrets, um, it was very freeing. And it basically, um, um, I'm struggling for the word I want, but made me feel uh, justified and recognized for these things I thought all, the, all through the years of my adulthood, but could never quite quite put um, put something there that was concrete that I knew happened to explain my feelings and my memories. So it, it was extremely freeing, too. Well, I'm sure, and again, uncovering, I mean, you, I think you, in reading the book, I understand is that you found letters and you, you know, you talked to people that kind of opened your eyes on several levels that kind of showed a different side of your father um, and the life and where he came from and why. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and some of the reasons for, you know, the way he, he was. Um, but again, you also, you do this with love and, and compassion and humanity. At least that's Thank what you. I got from reading it. It's done. It's done it very well. You know, very well. Um, do you, when you did this and when you started exploring and researching this, did it give you a better understanding? Because I know you grew up in a, in the mixed religion uh, arena. Mm -hmm. Did it, did it give you a connection back to some of your roots? Um, it did. My. Jewish roots specifically, because I was prevented from knowing my extended Jewish family. I saw my grandparents maybe once a year, twice a year. And as I got older, when I was a teenager, I went up by myself to visit them because my grandfather spoke 
four languages fluently, maybe even five, and went to Europe every summer and was a concert pianist and a fascinating, erudite man. Um, whereas my mother's family were uneducated, um, fairly racist, I'll have to say. Um, and I didn't want to be around that family. I wanted to be around my Jewish family. So um, I've uncovered some second cousins. And I'm actually going to be in New York um, in a couple of weeks. And I'm going to meet them for the first time. Oh, um, another one I, I knew growing up um, because my grandfather taught him piano and he became quite an accomplished pianist. And um, so these are his uh, he's my second cousin, but um, the other two are his first cousins. And I'm really excited about meeting them. And um, I have a cousin. I have cousins on the West Coast, uh, one of whom tracked me down doing um, um, family family background research. And that was about 10 or 15 years ago. And I'd had an off and on correspondence with him. But he bought the book and bought a copy for each of his relatives, and they they all loved it. They were all extremely positive about it. So I think it's ironic that the family I was kept from being with, because my dad made this choice that he made, both to not be a Jew and to live in the South uh, and not mingle with his Jewish relatives that much, um, that the only people who are having an issue with it are my Christian Sisters, everybody else um, sees sees the book for what it is. You know, it's it's it was written with love, and I told them. I said when I was writing it, I said to both of them, "This isn't a hit job. This isn't coming out of anger. This is coming out of love and a desire to understand." Um, and yet, you know, if they were writing a memoir, it would be completely different from mine. I know that, um, as you mentioned earlier, you know, they have their reality and I have mine. So. Yeah, I think, do you think this is in essence leaving a, a legacy? I hope so. Um, at what point did you get involved in having him? And I'm not trying to give anything away, but at what point did you have him? I think it was reburied in the Holocaust. Uh, memorial? Oh, no, that was um interesting story. My cousin on my mother's side, who, uh, when we were growing up, had a swastika hanging on his bedroom wall. And um, I never understood how my father could just ignore that. And we saw that family regularly. So after... I left home. I had nothing to do with his cousin or his brother who died um, in his early 40s of heart disease. Um, but he came back into my life about seven, seven or eight years ago because his father, my uncle, had been a courier uh, during World War II. And at the end of the war, he was sent to Dachau uh, to take some papers and while there, he was given a tour of the concentration camp by one of the former inmates. 
And at the end of the tour, the inmate scooped up some compressed ashes and gave them to my uncle saying, I give you this so you will never forget. My uncle put them in a drawer, never spoke about it um, until the year he was dying. He had heart disease and he knew he was dying. So he told my cousin, whose name is Joe, about the ashes and the story of the ashes and uh, that even when he told it, he was crying and shaking. It had affected him so deeply. And so Joe put them in a drawer for another another 10 years or more. And, and Joe has had um, several heart attacks and bypass surgeries. So he was afraid he would die and these ashes would get thrown away because nobody would know what they were. So eventually it came to me to find a burial for them. He wanted them buried with full Jewish rites. Cremation is not um, condoned in Jewish um, theology, um, but if you're cremated against your will, you can have a, a burial, a Jewish burial. So I was able to uh, link up with some people in this area, um, two rabbis and a woman who um, co-established the Holocaust Speakers Bureau here. And um, we worked as a committee, and um, the Hebrew Cemetery uh, is part of Bethel Congregation in Durham, North Carolina, near where I live. And they giving, were giving a plot there for the burial of these ashes. Um, the ashes had to be authenticated, and um, they went to the New York Medical Examiner's Office, the office that examined the remains from 9-11. And the report came back that they were indeed human ashes. So at that point, we were able to move forward with the burial. And it was an incredibly moving service um, because there were survivors there with the numbers tattooed on their arms. And um, they threw dirt once we lowered the small casket into containing the ashes into the grave. They would file by and throw dirt on the casket saying, for my mother, for my sister, for my father. And it was just heartbreaking. Um, but my cousin Joe from the Nazi memorabilia loving racist redneck side of my family was there. And as the person responsible for bringing all this to pass, and it was like the two sides of my family and my split heritage came together during that ceremony. And um, so that the book ends with that ceremony um, and a quote from um, the prayer for the dead that says um, something to the effect that um, they shall bind him with the rope of life. And that's where the title of my book came from. Listen, that, that's that's amazing. It's an amazing story. I just wanted you to share that. Um, I've had the, the the honor and the privilege of meeting several people that survived the Holocaust, and um, in speaking with them and talking with them, it uh, left a deep impression upon me. I thought that was very profound uh, that you were able to accomplish that. I think it's uh, very unique, and that's in the book. The stories in the book, you have pictures and in the whole bit, which is really it's just pretty cool. So I'm going to I'm going to ask you a quick question. You can we're going to show people where they can find you and where to buy your book. 
And then I'll bring you back in for another question. Okay. So where can, where can someone find you and your book? Well, I have a website, um, www.marindacossoff.com. Be careful on the last name because it's easy to misspell. Um, and my book can be found at bookstores anywhere. If they don't have it in stock, they can order it. It can be found online. It's also available in Audible and for download on Kindle. But I always like to push independent bookstores. So I hope if people will go to their local indie bookstore, if they want to purchase my book. And if that store doesn't have it, they can order it. Um, And I thank you in advance if you decide to do that. I have a question for you. This is one more thing before you go. So before we go, do you have any advice or any words of wisdom that you'd like to share? Well, um, I guess one thing I've learned through my long life thus far is to listen to my gut, to that internal voice, because when I listen to it, um, I don't go astray. When I try to avoid it or override it, that's when bad things happen. And I, I would just encourage people to be in touch with your inner selves with your emotions, and it's not going to kill you to cry. It's not going to kill you to think about something painful. And in fact, I think the only way to deal with something painful is to go through it and come out the other side with hopefully more self-knowledge and self-understanding and understanding of others who experience the same things. I want to thank you very much for uh, joining me on this program and for sharing this journey with me and the journey of your life and this wonderful book. I think everybody should take an opportunity to read it. It's going to help you to connect with your family or give you the opportunity to think about the fact that there's always one more thing to say and that you really should say it before and that you can still pass that on in a legacy such as you did with the Rope of Life. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. It's been an honor and a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Nice day. Have a nice week. And thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a new conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010. All rights reserved.